This is the Mathematics Education Podcast from MathEdPodcast.com. Welcome to the Math Ed Podcast. My name is Sam Otten from the University of Missouri, and my guest is Whitney Johnson, who's an assistant professor of mathematics education at Morgan State University. Whitney, thanks for being here. You're welcome. We are going to be talking about Whitney's article, Teaching with Speeches, a black teacher who uses the mathematics classroom to prepare students for life. And that appears in Teachers College Record, Volume 115, Issue Number 2. Um, that'll be the focus of the episode, but before we get there, Whitney, I wanted to ask you first about where you attended graduate school and what your dissertation study was on. Okay, so I attended graduate school at Michigan State University in Lansing, Michigan. It's a good school. Yes. <laughs> I did my master's and my doctorate there. Uh, my master's was in mathematics, though, not in education. And that's sort of the strange story of how I sort of got into education, but... That was the location of the degrees. Mm -hmm. And you did a postdoctoral study following that as well? Eventually. So I left (laughs) Michigan State, and I took a job actually before finishing my degree. I took a job at a small liberal arts college in Albion, Michigan, and I was there for three years. And then I left there, and I went to the University of Maryland at College Park for a postdoc. And uh, while you were at the University of Maryland, that's when you got in with this crowd, um, Daniel Chase and Lawrence Clark and others. And they, together with yourself, came together to form this special issue in Teachers College Record. Um, And actually, if listeners want to go to episode 1312 of this podcast, um, you'll hear Dan Chase and Lawrence Clark talking more about that special issue. Um, But you yourself had some work in this special issue. I was wondering, too, um, first, if you could acknowledge your co-authors just to get those on the record. Yes, so my co-authors were Farhana Nemeshi, Dan Chazen, and Bill Rosenthal. Okay, and uh, together with them, you conducted this study um, called Teaching with Speeches. A black teacher uses the math classroom to prepare students for life. And this falls within the realm of um, a black teacher, black students in an urban setting for mathematics education. I was wondering what, um, if you have a personal motivation that's led you into this area of research. Yeah, so this is very different, actually, from what I did my dissertation on. My dissertation was about broadening pre-service math teachers' understanding of mathematics. And when I came to the University of Maryland, they had conceptualized the study and set out how the study should be structured and run, and I became a part of the study right when we started collecting data. So as a postdoc, I sort of took over that realm and working with graduate students to collect the data. My interests had sort of, they didn't really change because I do still do a lot with pre-service teachers and mathematics, or actually Mm -hmm. in-service teachers and mathematics, but I became very interested in the education of black children in particular, since I am an African-American woman, and just from attending conferences and reading people's papers, how they were being spoken about and how their ability to do mathematics was being spoken about. It was very negative to me. And then I've always spent a lot of time in schools with teachers, you know, as a starting as a graduate student. And people would say things like, well, they're not teaching towards the standards, as if that was a negative thing. 
or their content knowledge, the teachers don't show a good grasp of content knowledge and they have no pedagogical content knowledge. And I started to wonder, like, how do you know these things if you haven't sat with the teacher? Those are the questions that you actually can't answer, I think, by just looking at a teacher's teaching. Mm -hmm. And so my personal motivation became was as I sat in those classrooms and I watched what the teachers were doing and I watched what the students were doing, the students, in many cases, they weren't engaged in what was going on. So there really wasn't a chance for them to do well on an assessment or to do exceptional on an assessment. And I started seeing that there were other dynamics at play that in the end lead to low achievement, but it wasn't because the students weren't capable because they showed their ability in so many other different ways that the, t the two just weren't making sense to me. Mm -hmm. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I think it does. So, and, okay. and so you really wanted to, to do a more careful look and, and look at some of the basis for these claims or maybe look at a problematic, you know, a basis for these claims that you viewed as potentially problematic. Mm -hmm. To try and understand when a teacher is teaching her, his or her students, what are the choices that they make to show, to, pre to present the subject matter in a certain way to the students? And is that a real reflection of what they know? And what we came to find out in the study is that it isn't. The teachers most generally tended to know a whole lot more mathematics than what you could see through their presentation of the material. But for particular reasons having to do with the structure of the school, their ability to manage the class, the dispositions of the students on a given day, those are the things that impacted their decisions to present the material in the ways that they did. Hmm. And so in this particular study uh, in Teachers College Record, you looked in depth at the classroom of Floyd Lee. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about Floyd Lee's background and the school setting that this study took place in. Mm -hmm. So the school is in what we would call an urban setting. If you look at the demographics and the size of the schools and things like the farms rate of the school, farms rate was okay. over 50%, a very large school building, over 2,400 students in the building, majority almost 50% Latino, 50% black. And Floyd was a very young teacher. When we started working with him, he had just started his, the beginning of his second full year of teaching. So he had completed a year and a half of teaching in this building. And as a novice teacher, his ability to interact with students and to manage his classroom and to manage all of the things that a new teacher deals with, he was just phenomenal at it. You never would have known he was a new teacher. Mm -hmm. And his preparation was uh, in secondary mathematics, is that mm -hmm. right? Yes, he attended uh, Historically Black College that wasn't far from the school in which we did the study. And it was a traditional teacher education program. So he has a degree in mathematics and then he has the teacher education certification or the mathematics okay. teacher certification. Mm -hmm. And then uh, what data were you drawing on as you were um, developing and building this case study of yeah. Floyd Lee's classroom? We collected a ton of data. So for Floyd, <laughs> we had six teachers in the study. For Floyd, I think we have about 10 interviews, probably 30 observations that we were drawing on for the whole year. 
and then informal conversations. I don't know if in the conversation with Dan and Lawrence they told you how the project was stu structured with the three groups doing the observations. Yeah, they did somewhat, yep. Yeah, so I was the sense of, pur sense of purpose person for Floyd Lee. So I saw all of the observations that were done across algebra data analysis and then ones of my own. And then I interviewed him about 10 times over the course of the study. Okay. And again, in episode 1312, you can hear Dan and Lawrence talk a little bit more about um, some aspects of Floyd Lee's teaching. In your study, Whitney, you looked at um, what you call his speeches. Mm -hmm. um, and these are moments where he kind of steps out of math instruction, um, and he's addressing things like behavior and motivation. I was wondering what led you to focus on those speeches or those interactions in the classroom. Yeah. Um, the first thing that drew me to the speeches was that they occurred so often. It wasn't just something that he did on the first day of class or the first week of class. These are things that started on the first day of class, and they went all the way through to the end of the school year. So he gave, I don't remember the number, I, I counted at one point, he gave <laughs> certainly over 10 speeches, way over 10 speeches during the year. And the speeches, they always had a purpose to them. So even though in the speeches he wasn't addressing mathematical content, he was addressing things like the need for students to pay attention, the need for students to be prepared. And so he would take these sort of moments to have these um, more personal, more implications for your life type conversations, and then try and bring use that to get them back engaged into the mathematics. So he was addressing issues of life and motivation, but he, he also would at certain points connect it back to here and now in this math class, how this relates. Mm -hmm. So for instance, he would say things like, if you can't be prepared in class, if you show up late, if you don't bring pencils and papers and the things that you need to take notes, if you don't pay attention, then those are the same habits that you're going to take to a job. Because what you're doing now is preparing you for what you'll do after you graduate. And so you won't be a good employee for anyone. No one will want to keep you on as a, will not want to hire you or keep you employed if you show up late, if you're not prepared, if you don't know what you're doing. And so he would take these things that they would be doing for his class and say, okay, so we need to change that. We need to get you prepared for class. You need to come here prepared. And then he would take that into sort of why you would want to study mathematics or why mm -hmm. you would want to do well in this class. So his reasoning wasn't so much that one day, you know, that mathematics is so wonderful and great and interesting, even though it is, um, or that mathematics, you know, what I'm teaching you now, everything in Algebra 1, you're going to need that for your future. He even acknowledges at one point, you know, things like factoring trinomials. You're really never going to do that outside of a math classroom unless you take mm -hmm. a job in some science or something. He said, but it does have meaning right now. And the meaning he connected to was, you have to pass this exam at the end of the school year. So in this district, this was the first year, well, actually it was the second year. So these students were under the No Child Left Behind where they had to pass the end of the year high stakes assessment in order to get a degree. 
And so he would say, no, you're not going to factor trinomials for the rest of your life, but if you can't factor a trinomial on this exam, then you're not going to graduate high school. What sort of habits and motivation do you need right now to be successful at this point because then your future success depends on this? Yes, it depends on it and it requires the same things of you in mm -hmm. terms of the behaviors, not in terms of the mathematical knowledge. Mm -hmm. I'm speaking with Whitney Johnson from Morgan State University about her article in uh, the Teacher's College Record, Volume 115. So you had you know, extensive interviews with Floyd Lee, and you had the observations of his classroom, and you identified these speeches where he steps out as something really prevalent in his teaching practice and something just very interesting and important to the classroom overall. Mm -hmm. um, so I was wondering if you could continue to tell us about some of the other themes that you noticed emerging from his interactions with his algebra students. Yeah, so one of the things about the speeches, it wasn't only that he changed from the teaching of mathematics to addressing non-content issues with the students, but his manner of speaking changed, if that makes any sense. So because he attended K-12 in this district that he's now teaching in, mm -hmm. and also, you know, he also attended college nearby, he felt that he had a personal connection to the students. He felt that he knew them pretty well because they're going through the same school system that he went to, even though he wasn't, he didn't attend that particular school. And so when he would go into the speeches, he would talk, it was more like a father talking to their children than it was a teacher talking to their students. And so even when he's reprimanding them, he, he spoke very personally to them. So what led us to focus on the speeches was that kind of interaction. And also when he, was, when he would give the speech, the students wouldn't dismiss what he was saying. So, you know, I can't say to whatever extent they were truly paying attention to him, but there was no disrespectful behavior taking place. They generally tended to sit there and to listen and then even sometimes ask questions about the things that he was saying. So it became more of this personal, family, father-son, father-daughter type conversation. Then when we mm -hmm. started looking at all of the speeches over the year, we realized that they sort of took on three different tones. So there are times that 
He was intentionally being very assertive and asserting his authority. And even though it was, he was asserting his authority as a teacher, he was also sort of asserting his authority as a person in their community, a leader in their community, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. He also would coach them at different points in time. So um, even on the first day, he gave this speech about, okay, so our goal this semester or this year is to pass the high-stakes high assessment. And it's like being in a fight. And what we're fighting is the exam. So he switches and he locates himself on the side with the students. And he becomes the coach of the students and he tells them how he's going to prepare them for the exam and how they need to practice in order to get ready for the exam. And so there was this continual coaching element that went throughout the year. Even in the speeches, he would say, you know, I know I'm yelling at you right now, I'm getting on you, or we have our moments, but I really do care about you, and I really do love you, and that's why I push so hard. And so even when he's being assertive, he's being caring. And what we realized were these were all elements of culturally responsive classroom management, and that's how we decided to structure the article. And as you, you dug into these elements of culturally responsive classroom management, you, in the article, connect it back to content issues in terms of pedagogical content knowledge and uh, mathematical knowledge for teaching. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering if you could help us understand how, how you see this study contributing to that larger conversation of pedagogical content knowledge and how these elements that are on the surface don't seem very content-specific, how that relates to the bigger conversation. Mm-hmm. So I think it was a sort of a unique situation where you had a teacher who had grown up in the same district that he was teaching in. And because he was young in age, he sort of felt that he wasn't too far away from his students. So he understood their social lives and the choices that they were making. And he could even recall being in the position of having to make some pretty serious choices too. And so what I took away from this is that, well, also that it's important to understand that the pressure of passing the high stakes assessment in this district was tremendous. And unfortunately, I think in urban schools, what people set, the standards that people set for testing, 
even though they're saying this is the minimum amount that you need to know in order to graduate, it becomes the maximum of what they're going to receive in terms of content and instruction in many of these urban schools. And that has... Yeah, it becomes the ultimate target. You, it does. Yeah, it's set as the minimum, but then it becomes the full target. Yeah. Yes. And so for him, getting them to pass this exam was everything. So in the article, I think we have a quote where he says, you know, the mathematics is important. He's, it's not that he doesn't think mathematics is important, but it's more important for the students to pass the exam because of what it means to their lives on a larger scale. So for me, he was an example of a person who he had strong content knowledge and he had pretty decent pedagogical content knowledge. Other people probably would say it was pretty low because he wasn't very standards-based. He didn't know a lot about constructivism and engaging students in mathematics in a variety of different ways. But he brought these other resources to his teaching which seemed to engage his students and make them commit to passing the exam. So I can't say what of mathematics they learned when they, from that class in general, but I can say that they took it seriously enough to work hard to pass that exam because they only had one student not pass the exam. Hmm. So I think the conversation about pedagogical content knowledge and content knowledge, there needs to be another aspect to that. When you have a mm -hmm. teacher who is from the same culture, especially a community of the students, there's another set of resources that they're able to draw upon that's outside of PCK or content knowledge. And mm -hmm. that set of resources is pretty special and actually necessary when you're in a school building where what you're receiving in terms of content is pretty boring <laughs> because of the pressure of the exams. And so kids are tuning out for all sorts of reasons, but using this other resource that he had, he was able to bring them back around and engage them in some way, shape, or form in doing mathematics. Or as we say in the article, becoming a person who studies in school. Yeah, so it, it sounds a little bit like he identified um, the motivation in getting students to really buy in mm -hmm. um, to giving a full effort in mathematics. Mm -hmm. uh, he viewed that as a key challenge in his algebra class. And so using these speeches and using his connections with the students and through the community, he really took on that issue of the motivation and getting them fired up. And then it sounds like to a degree of success, I mean, having, having that many students pass the exam, yes. with that being the target that he set. Yes. And it's not a resource that I think, it, it's sort of, it's special in the sense that it's the teacher sharing the culture of the students in some way, but I think it's something that we can learn from, especially if you think about, you know, how do we prepare people to go and teach in urban areas? What sort of knowledge do they need? Is PCK and content knowledge enough? Mm. And I think if you look at Floyd, you could say, no, they need something else. There's something else that they need to be successful in those settings. Because he was able to connect to the students in a way that many, many teachers were not able to do. Mm -hmm. It really seems to raise um, 
some new ideas with respect to meeting the challenges of urban education. You mm -hmm. mentioned in the article about how you know, the challenges of urban education have been, you know, discussed and have been studied before, but a lot of times, you know, it's it's been still talked about in the same terms as mathematics education in general, um, like more PCK or more content knowledge or some kind of different preparation um, will also address the urban education issues in the same way that they do math education in general. But what I hear you saying is that there might be particular sets of resources that are unique to different urban education settings, and I don't mean to generalize for all urban, urban education settings, there might be some for Floyd Lee's district, different ones for others, but mm -hmm. just that it it's a entirely different animal, and, and maybe we need to think more broadly about that set of resources. Yes. Yes. And that you could learn something from Floyd Lee and what he does in the classroom. But I think a lot of people might critique him in saying that the speeches took too much of his class time, but if you don't have the students with you, even if you're teaching mathematics for the entire length of the class, what are the students going to get out of it if they're not paying you any attention? Mm -hmm. So inside of the speeches, what he was doing there was essential to me because he was keeping them moving forward. He was keeping them engaged. And on a daily basis, he would check in with them. He gave these speeches to the class, but he would also give them one-on-one -on -one with students. Because I was his sense of person contact, I got to see him interact with students before school, after school, during lunch, and things like that. And mm -hmm. it's that respect that he was able to have as a teacher from the students that I think the speech has helped him to gain that respect. I'm speaking with Whitney Johnson about her article entitled Teaching with Speeches a black teacher who uses the mathematics classroom to prepare students for life. Um, thanks so much for talking about your work. And before I let you go, um, I do have a final question that I ask all my guests. Um, this is Kara of Aaron Brackenecki, who also went to Michigan State University, as both of us did. So imagine a scenario where you aren't doing math education as your profession. What would you be doing? <laughs> it is so bizarre of a question to me because if you had asked me that before I before I'd say the past two years, I would probably have a list of things that I might be doing. Um, but I've now made this commitment to the education of, of black children that I can't imagine doing anything else. So as a professor, I will continue to study classrooms where black children are and what's that environment like, so sort of the social setting. and. Mm -hmm. How do we work to truly engage these students in, in being successful in school? But I'm also starting a nonprofit with a teacher, actually. Uh, we'll probably, we're going to get it, file the paperwork and things this coming year. And what we're going to do is sort of, we're going to start with an elementary school, the, like the last two years of elementary school, and students who are in the first two years of a middle school where the elementary school feeds into a particular middle school. Our idea is to first just provide them with learning experiences that they would never ever have the opportunity. Well, I shouldn't say never, but are very likely not to have an opportunity. So taking them outside of the city, um, taking them to the beach, taking them to the farms, taking them to 
uh, like a strawberry farm where you get to pick strawberries for yourself and then doing something with that. Musicals and plays and just all sorts of experiences that they don't get on a sort of oh, monthly, daily, yearly basis in their own lives. Because what mm -hmm. we found is many of these students, they don't ever have the chance of getting out of Baltimore City. Some of them are so embedded that they, they don't even know what's going on outside of their neighborhoods or outside of the places that, you know, the family may travel to. And so first we just want to give them a wide variety of learning experiences and then eventually turn that into working with teachers in the schools to provide different in-school learning experiences for students. I think a part of like the testing has become so powerful that it limits the content in certain ways, but I think mm -hmm. it's also having an effect on teachers, especially new teachers, that some don't even see the students as capable. And so it's almost as though they need to be convinced that the students can do something else besides remediation. Where mm -hmm. capable means, you know, passing the test. You know, that, that becomes the definition for capability. For them, yes. And so, mm -hmm. you know, why would you, you know, offer AP calculus to them? Because they will never be able to do that. And we're seeing that teachers are sort of falling into that mindset. So what we want to do is give students different types of learning experiences so that they can get a definition of what it means to really learn and they don't only take the school definition of what it means to learn. And then we believe, because we believe in the possibility and the ability of our children, that those learning experiences will carry over into other things and that we will help them to be able to see the reason why you need the school education, sort of as Floyd Lee has done, but we will try and do it through learning experiences as opposed to speeches. Mm -hmm. um, the students will become different students because of the other learning experiences, we think. And then working with the teachers and the schools to recognize, you know, how powerful and how capable these children actually are and then to begin to think, okay, so what can we do differently inside of school to get that light that you're seeing outside of school in the building? Mm -hmm. So it's a very long trajectory of my life. That's, that's it. I can't see mm -hmm. myself doing anything else other than that. Yeah, well, it sounds really great and sounds, um, you know, potentially very powerful. Um, so good luck with, with those endeavors. Thank you. And thank you also, uh, Whitney, so much for, for being my guest and talking about your work. Surely. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the MathEd Podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, please use the PayPal donation button at mathedpodcast.com.